Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word like a newborn baby, that you may grow thereby. His divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Before we open up God's word this morning, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are so very, very thankful and grateful for all that you have done for us and all that you have provided for us. We cannot fathom it. We cannot exhaustively understand it. We can barely scratch the surface. We need to study your word more faithfully, more diligently. We need to read it, memorize it, internalize it. We need to come to understand the blessings and privileges and assets you've given us. For so rarely is the believer that that truly depends upon you. Father, we are thankful that you reveals to us that which we must know in order that we may live our lives in conformity to the reality that you have created, to be able to understand the problems that we see around us as being the result of rejection of you, disobedience to you, and the reality of sin and corruption in the world. And, Father, we are thankful that when we come to your word, we know that we have sure and certain truth. And as we begin a short little series today related to the birth of our Lord, we pray that we might come to have our faith confirmed even more as we uh, examine these prophecies and what was foretold and what was fulfilled, that our faith may be sure and certain, and that we may have even greater confidence in you. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's begin this morning by just opening our Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, and that's what we'll begin with as we get started today. So our topic this morning is tracing the seed. This is an extremely important uh, aspect of messianic prophecy. So that's what I'm looking at. Some of these prophecies, I've been listing out a number of the ones that relate to the birth of our Lord, more than I'm going to be able to cover in the next uh, three Sundays. So I'll probably break this. Up. I'm trying to organize it so that I can do part of it this year, part of it next year, maybe part of it the year after that, and this will be an, uh, an ongoing uh, uh, Christmas uh, series. So when we come to the Scriptures, we must recognize that in Galatians 4.4, Paul tells us that Christ was born in the fullness of time. In other words, what he is saying is that though Adam and Eve sinned at the beginning of human creation, God had to wait 
somewhere between four and 5,000 years before he could send the Savior. He had to prepare things because the human race wasn't quite ready to understand his grace. To understand God's grace in a profound sense, I think we have to also understand the extent and depravity and corruption of sin. And we don't fully appreciate our redemption if we don't understand how corrupt and lost and spiritually dead we are when we come into this world. And so as God prepared the world, one of the things that he did was to give information about this future Savior so that by the time that he arrived, people would be able to identify him. They would know this is the one. He gave clear indication through prophecy. Now, a lot of people have trouble with prophecy because they think that prophecy is something like what you see in some of the uh, fantasy films or books that are out on the market when people think of, of uh, prophecy, perhaps you think of some of the prophecies that are found in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings trilogy or this new series based on the uh, Silmarillion, uh, Rings of Power, and you have these various uh, prophecies that are set forth, and they're awfully obscure. People don't really know what they mean. Sometimes they the, the fulfillment doesn't quite look like what the prophecy was. Or maybe some of the prophecies in the Star Wars franchise. But other people think of prophecy as just these generalized predictions based on sort of normative patterns. So others think about horoscopes and seances and people who are using various forms of divination to somehow foretell the future and find some kind of security and stability in this life. But when you come to the Bible, the prophecies in the Bible are of an order and category that is unlike any other so-called prophecy that you may be familiar with. For example, in these um, prophecies, in these works of fiction, prophecies related to astrology, divination, things of that, uh, things of that nature, they are often couched in such generalized language that they can be shaped to fit just about any kind of situation. I mean, if you've been around any length of time, you have read at least a dozen accounts of how something that's happening on the current stage was predicted by Nostradamus some uh, centuries ago. And you just read the prophecy and you look at what happened, you scratch your head wondering how anybody could think that that's what was fulfilled. Scripture is not like that. The prophecies in the Bible are to be 100% accurate. Any prediction made by a prophet that was anything less than 100% accurate was to be punished by death because that person was deemed to be someone who had contradicted God and was leading people astray. So this is a very harsh penalty because the realities are so important. In the book of Deuteronomy, there are two passages that describe the test for profit. The first has to do with it must agree with other accepted and revealed scripture, other revealed truth. 
if there is a contradiction in any way, to any degree, then it is to be ignored. It is not a prophecy from God. In Deuteronomy 13, uh, 1 through 3, and then we'll look at 8 through 10 also, what we see is a hypothetical situation in the law. If there arises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, this is someone who says, I have a prophecy. Maybe they stand up in church and say, God has given me a prophecy. Maybe you see them on TV. Maybe it's some uh, show about an astrologer or whatever it may be. If they claim to be a prophet, they claim that God or some supernatural being has given them a dream. And with that, there's a sign and a wonder. So none of this is disputing the 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 dream, the vision. It's not saying, well, he didn't really dream it. He's not, it's not saying, well, it really was a false sign or wonder. He goes on to say in verse 2, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass. Now, you would ask a lot of questions that if somebody makes a prediction and it comes to pass, that that legitimizes it. That's not what this says. This says that you are to test it. Just because somebody performs a miracle doesn't mean that, that it validates what they're saying. And too many people think that that's the role of a sign or a wonder is to perfectly va- uh, validate what the person has said. But what this passage tells us is, no, it's the content of what somebody says that validates what they say. Because in verse uh, 2 goes on to say, uh, So the sign or the wonder comes to pass, of which he spoke, saying, Let us go after other gods. So the, that's the message. Let's go worship idols. These are gods you have not known, and they say, let's go worship these gods and serve them. And what does God say? No, you don't listen to them. You do not listen to the words of that prophet or the dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you. See, the Lord's going to test you about your understanding of doctrine, your understanding of biblical truth. And he's going to put people out there that are going to give false prophecies that God allows uh, something to come true to see if you're going to really pay attention to the content or have your emotions stirred by the apparent fulfillment of a prophecy. So the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. In other words, is the Word of God more real to you than any feeling, any experience, any uh, alleged prophecy or dream that somebody has. And for most Christians, they always get a failure on this because they're more concerned about how they fe- how it made them feel, especially in this era, how they fe- felt and the experience that they had. Oh, I went to hear this great healer, and at the time I had cancer, and afterwards they could find no evidence of cancer, so she must be from God. No wrong, because what this woman teaches contradicts Scripture. So God tested you to see if you would be obedient to the Word and make the Word more important than experience, and you failed. I actually had that conversation with a woman one time. They don't like to hear that, but that's what this is saying. Now, there's a penalty for this that is then laid out in verses 8 through 10, and we see this in verse 9 where it says that The person who does this, you shall surely kill him. 
Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people, and you shall stone him with stones until he dies, because he sought to entice you away from the Lord your God. See, that's the issue. When you are putting out any level of false doctrine, any fake news, any fake doctrine, any fake theology, then what you are doing is performing the devil's work in enticing people away from the word. So that's the first test. If it doesn't conform to revelation, other accepted revelation of Scripture, then it's false. The second test comes in Deuteronomy 18, 20 to 22, and we see this in verse 22, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously, you shall not be afraid of him. So we have these two distinct tests so that we can evaluate the claims of somebody who says that, well, God told me. How many times do you hear people say that? God told me. I had a dream. Whatever. So we can evaluate that. So we're looking at prophecy, prophecy related to the Messiah. And God has given this incrementally through the Scriptures. So before we get a little further, we need to define what prophecy is. So prophecy is the impartation or disclosure of information from a supernatural source. It could be directly from God, from the angel of the Lord. It could be from an angel that communicates this to the prophet. Uh, And it is communicated to mortals who cannot discover this knowledge through finite human means. They couldn't get there through logic. They can't get there uh, through any experience. They can't get there through any kind of mystical insight. It is only available through direct revelation of God through either by either himself, an angel, the angel of the Lord, or an angel according to Scripture. Um, it's a disclosure that goes beyond human cognition, wisdom, or logic. At times, God has chosen to make known to his servants the prophets' information about the future, which is always completely accurate. Those two words always and completely set it apart from anything else that, that you may think of. In fact, when we look at Scripture, we see things such as in 1 Samuel 9, 9, that originally prophets were called seers because they could see what would actually take place in the future. And in the same chapter, 1 Samuel 9, not only verse 9, which I just put up there, but 9, 6, uh, talking about Samuel... They said he's an honorable man. All that he says surely comes to pass. So that shows that the the test is 100% accuracy. Now, scholars have calculated that over 28% of the Bible, when it was originally revealed, was predictive prophecy. 28%, that's a little over a, a quarter of the Bible, of the Old Testament, was predictive prophecy at the time that it was given. At this point, including the New Testament, about 20% um, would, we, I would say about 20% is predictive, uh, predictive prophecy, and probably about uh, 18% of that is yet fulfilled. It is not fulfilled yet. 
So we look at this issue of prophecy. How can these prophets tell the future? How can they be accurate? How can we expect such a high degree of accuracy? Well, we expect that because their source of information is God, who is unique. There is none like him. I want you, I've got several verses I'm going to put up here from Isaiah. And it's interesting how many times God emphasizes as he is countering the claims of idols and false prophets. And he basically says in these verses, okay, you claim that you're a God, you have a God, you have revelation, you have prophecy. Tell me the future. I mean, if you claim that this wooden idol is a God, can it tell you what's going to happen in the future? I alone am God. I mean, I've just paraphrased it several times. In Isaiah, you have this same argument. Idols speak. Tell me what the future is. No, you can't do it because I alone am God. So we look in Isaiah 41, 21 to 23, and God is confronting these false prophets, and he says, Present your case. Bring forth your strong reasons. Let them bring forth and show us what will happen. See, God challenges the false teachers and those who promote false religions and says, okay, you you have the truth? Well, tell me what the future is going to be. How can God do that? Because, first of all, God is omniscient. He knows all of the knowable. There's nothing that he is ignorant of or unaware of. And so because he knows everything, he can actually tell what is going to happen. To God, all things are present. He sees the future and the past and the present all at one time. And he knows exactly what will take place so he can reveal it or not. But these false gods are nothing. They're just something, some human made out of wood. So he says, uh, let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Let them show the former things, what they were, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them. Or declare to us things to come. Show the things that are to come hereafter. That's the challenge. And the response is nothing. They can't do it. In Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, we read, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my good pleasure. God knows and has declared what will happen in the future, and because he's omniscient, we know that we can accurately understand that. Isaiah 45, 21, tell them, bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no God besides me, a just God and a Savior There is none beside me. So God is able to predict the future. Now, estimates have been made about how many messianic prophecies there are in the Old Testament. Um, You have two categories of prophecies in the Old Testament, those that were fulfilled at Christ's first coming and those that are yet fulfilled and will be fulfilled when he returns uh, to establish his kingdom. So there are two different kinds. And one of the uh, largest numbers of uh, given for the number of Messianic prophecies is by a Jewish convert to Christianity, well-known by the name of Alfred Adersheim, 
And he wrote a classic work called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. And in there he claims that there were 456 promises, messianic messianic promises in the Old Testament. It's difficult to validate that because he includes things that he gets from applying rabbinical midrashic interpretation to the Old Testament and some other things. But he's correct in that it is a very large number. I have read others that say there's around 200 to 300. It it kind of varies as to how they apply their, their system of interpretation. But the unusual thing is that today... We have a vast number of so-called evangelical scholars who deny predictive prophecy related to the Messiah. They are hard-pressed to find to find one genuine messianic promise or prophecy in the Old Testament. It's amazing, though, that Jesus did. He found quite a few of them, for after the resurrection... He appeared to two of his disciples, Cleopas and another, a named one, on their way home from Jerusalem to a small village called Emmaus. And while he is walking, they can't, they, he's sort of cloaked his identity so they don't recognize him. And they are discussing among themselves all the things that have just happened from the, uh, arrest and crucifixion and death of Jesus, who they believed was the Messiah, and then his his resurrection, the things that were said, and they just are very confused and having a hard time putting it together. And so after they have walked a while and Jesus has overheard all of their confused musings, he asked them, he said, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And then he states, and then the, Luke states, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, not some of the prophets, beginning with Moses, that means from the very beginning of the Hebrew Old Testament, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I don't know a a biblically focused pastor or missionary or believer that doesn't wish they were a fly on the on the road at that time to hear which passages passages Jesus went to and how he applied them. That's going to be one of the first things I want to find out when I get to heaven is what he went through. So it's very clear. And so in this little short series, I want to talk about these messianic prophecies. And so we have to understand who the Messiah is, what that term means. It is an anglicized word that comes from the Hebrew word Mashiach, which basically means someone who is anointed or appointed for a particular task or mission. It is used 39 times in the Old Testament, but it is only used nine times in relation to the future royal savior and king of Israel. It's applied to priests, it's applied to kings, it's applied to others whom God appoints for a task, even to unbelievers. It's used of Cyrus, the king of Persia, who allowed the uh, exiled Jews to return home. And it is also applied to the pre-fall Satan. He was called the Mashiach 
He is the anointed cherub who covered the throne prior to his uh, fall into arrogance. Psalm 2.2 refers to the Lord and his Mashiach, his anointed one. Daniel 9.25 and 26 focus on a prophecy that describes the time, gives the time frame for the crucifixion when that would occur. Twice it mentions Messiah, Mashiach. So these are some of those prophecies. What I want to do is look at these prophecies as they appear in the law and the writing, the prophets and the writings. The Hebrew is Torah for law, Nevi'im are the prophets, and Ketuvim are the writings. So you take those first letters, T, N, and K, and you can uh, make an acronym, Tanakh. And so that is what the Old Testament scriptures are referred to by the Jews, the Tanakh the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. So I want to just go through Genesis briefly, some of the prophecies there. We don't have time to go through more of the law. I'll come back and do that next time. But the first, the first reference to the Messiah and God's plan is given in Genesis 3.15, immediately following uh, the sin of Adam and Eve. This passage is often described as the curse. But we use the word curse often in our language to refer to some kind of juju black magic uh, where somebody waves the magic wand and Snow White falls asleep until Prince Charming comes along to wake her up or something like that. That's not what the Bible means. A curse is a divine judgment for sin. And so God is outlining the consequences of Adam and Eve's disobedience. And in there, he is going to address not only Adam and Eve, but he begins by addressing the serpent. Now, there's some debate you may not be aware of in Christian history that the serpent is only a snake. And this came into Christianity through the influence of a rabbi from the Middle Ages by the name, goes by the, the name, nickname of Rashi. And he just took this as a literal snake. During the Reformation, there were a number of reformers who went to rabbis to learn Hebrew and picked up this unbiblical interpretation. And so even today, we have a number of so-called evangelical scholars they take the view that this is just a snake. It doesn't have anything to do um, with anything else. So we look at this passage where God addresses the serpent in Genesis 3.15, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, when we look at Jewish tradition, we have a clear understanding that this was a understood until the time of Rashi as a messianic passage. We see that uh, in the Midrash Rabbah Genesis, which is a commentary, Jewish commentary, ancient commentary on Genesis, Eve had respect to that seed which is coming from another place. And who is this? This is the King Messiah. So they understood early on, before, even before Christ, that this was messianic. In the Middle Ages, you have a well-known rabbi. He also contributed to some of the 
uh, problems with, with Christian interpretation, but on this he wrote, Messiah, the son of David, who shall wound Satan, who is the head, uh, who is the head that is the Messiah, the king and prince of the house, oh, excuse me, who is Satan, the king and prince of the house of the wicked. So he understood this as messianic. So this is a messianic prediction. It was called by those in the early church as the first gospel, the proto-evangelium. Evangelium, a word from where we get our word evangelism. So we read this. We need to answer four questions. Who is the serpent? Who or what is the seed? What is the contrast between your seed and her seed? And what is the meaning of this term bruising? So we'll just briefly go go through this. The preceding verse gives us a little context as God begins to address the serpent. He said, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Now, one thing you should observe here is that God phrases this as a comparative. He addresses the serpent and says, you are cursed more than all the cattle, which tells you that the cattle and the beasts of the field are, are, are judged also. There's corruption that comes into all creation, but there is something intensified about this judgment on the serpent. Another thing that we should notice is that the it is always the term Nahash for serpent always has the definite article. It is the serpent indicating uh, a, a exceptional identity. It, uh, the serpent here talks. That's not normal. So this isn't some normal snake. It's not talking about why humans fear snakes. It's not some myth. It is talking about a specific historical incident. The, there is an identification or correlation of the serpent with Satan in the New Testament. In Romans 16:20, there is an allusion to this, which reads, "And the God of peace shall crush Satan," which is a better translation than bruising. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 11:3, connected with 11:14, we know that Satan is uh, the arch deceiver. And we're told in those passages that the serpent deceived Eve, and that is a connection between the serpent and Satan. And in Revelation 12:9, we're told that he is the serpent of old, uh, called the devil and Satan. So it is clear from subsequent scripture that the serpent was not just a snake. It is the uh, that it was a beautiful creature God had created but was taken over by uh, Satan in order to deceive the woman. Now, this text in verse 15 tells us that there's this new condition of enmity or hostility, antagonism, that is going to exist between the serpent and the woman. Now, I know some women who like snakes, this is not a universal principle for that women are going to hate snakes, which is where some people try to take this. But this has to do with a spiritual state of hostility between the serpent and the woman and between your seed and her seed. 
So this word enmity is a word that talks about hostility, antagonism, a state of war, a state of conflict. The state of conflict is between the seed of the woman, a term we'll look at in a minute, and the seed or the seed of the serpent. And then we're told that he, that is the seed of the woman, will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now I want to address your attention to something here and that is when we look at the last uh, two uh, uh, clauses, you see the third person singular pronoun, a he. It's a masculine pronoun. So this tells us that what we're talking about here is an individual male figure who is the uh, seed of the woman, not all of her descendants. And that what will happen is he will bruise your head. The seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. That's a fatal wound. But this serpent's also a viper, and he will bruise his heel, crush his heel, is a better translation of this word. And often you've heard, well, a bite on the heel is not fatal like a bite on the head, but if you get struck by a cobra on the heel, you're going to die just as fast as if you got struck on the head. And the seed of the woman died, right, on the cross. But what happened? It's a resurrection. So it's not a permanently fatal wound. So the word that is translated seed is the Hebrew word zera, which is a collective noun. A collective noun is like the word in English deer. You can have one deer or two deer or a thousand deer, but you always use the same singular, same form, deer. You don't talk about deers. I remember when it was bad grammar to talk about shrimps. Still irritates. Shrimp is also a collective noun, or was. So you have a collective noun. That means it can be translated as either a singular descendant or as a plural descendants. So this one phrase can either refer to the group or it can refer to an individual. The fact that you have a third-person masculine singular pronoun in both of these places indicates that it's talking about the individual who represents the group, not the group itself. So this is a very important thing to observe here. So God says that there will be enmity, and they'll be struck on his heel. As I just pointed out, it's a masculine singular so it's referring to a male and not a female. It indicates the representative of the group. But another interesting thing is the Hebrew third-person masculine singular pronoun is used 103 times, and it correctly agrees with its antecedent. Now, what that means in grammar is that when you use a pronoun, he, she, or it, that it must agree with uh, person and gender of, uh, I mean, g uh, gender and number of its antecedent. So if you have a word that is feminine and a noun that is feminine, then you have to use a feminine pronoun to refer back to it. If the noun is masculine, you have to use a masculine pronoun. If it's neuter, you have to use a neuter pronoun. But 
in 102 of these instances, when it tra- was translated by the rabbis into Greek, in 102 instances, it always followed Greek grammar, and the pronoun agreed in uh, gender and number with its ad- antecedent, except for here. In Greek, the word for seed is sperma. It is a neuter noun. Therefore, it required a neuter ending it, in Greek. But the translator understood that this was messianic, and so translated it into Greek with the third-person masculine singular, which was bad grammar but accurate theology. That's very important. It shows us that in the third century before Christ, the rabbis who translated the Septuagint understood this to be a messianic prophecy, that it referred to the Messiah. Now, the next thing that um, I'm going to refer to is just this chart here. This is a timeline. What we're going to see, this is all predictive, but it's not like one verse. It's just a pattern that's in Genesis. In Genesis 5, you have a genealogy that when you're reading your Bible, you go ho-hum and you skip the genealogy and go to the good story. But the purpose of the genealogy is to trace the line of the seed, It starts with Adam and Eve, and so the genealogy traces the seed from Adam to Noah. Why? Because when you get to Matthew 1 and Luke 4, you're going to have genealogies that are going to trace Jesus' lineage all the way back. It's going to prove he's the seed of the woman. So this is is important to grasp this big picture in Genesis. Genesis 5 takes you from Adam to Noah, Genesis 11 takes you from Noah to Avram before God changed his name to Abraham. And then in Genesis 12 through 50, we're going to see the line go from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Judah. And at the end, there's a messianic promise to Judah. That is the line of the seed. The descendants of Eve cover the whole area between the two lines as the human race grows. But what Genesis 5, 11, and the rest of Genesis and subsequent genealogies do is they trace that single line of the messianic descendant to Jesus. In Genesis 9, 25 to 27, we have another sort of obscure prophecy This is after Noah is off the ark. God has given them the covenant, and he has had time to plant a vineyard and for it to grow and for the grapes to ferment and become wine. And he had a little private party and got drunk, passed out, naked in his tent. And there's this obscure situation where... um, one of his sons, Ham, comes in, sort of ridicules him, makes fun of him, but the other brothers show respect, and they back into the tent so they don't look on the naked body of their father, and they cover him. As a result of that, when Noah comes back to consciousness, God gives him a prophecy which really traces the history of his descendants. We're not going to get into all of that. I just want to point out one thing. He curses Canaan, not Ham, who treated him with disrespect, but he saw, he is shown something about 
one of Ham's sons that is uh, indicative of his future sexual perversion that was sort of imitated by, by, by his father, Ham. And so Canaan is cursed, not all of Ham's descendants, but the Canaanites. Remember, Moses writes this to the Jews who are on the plains of Moab, and they're getting ready to go in to the promised land. And God said, I want you to eradicate every man, woman, child, baby of the Canaanites. Just annihilate every one of them along with, in some places, along with all their cattle and sheep. We're just going to remove them surgically because they are such a blight on the, uh, on the human race. And so uh, Canaan's line is going to have this judgment. So God announces that, a slave of slaves, literally, that's how I would translate it, he shall be to his brethren. And he said, that is Noah, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. Now what's interesting is this passage focuses on Shem. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Second, and may Canaan be his, that is Shem's servant. Then you have the verse I want to focus on. It is typically translated, may God enlarge Japheth and may he lowercase, that would be Japheth, dwell in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be his slave. So here it would be just repeating that Canaan's going to be the slave of, of, of uh, Shem. But verse 26 talks about Shem. Verse 27 talks about God. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he, this should be a reference to God. We're talking about God here. May God dwell in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be his slave, slave to Shem, reiterates that. Now, what's interesting is this word translated dwell is the Hebrew word shakan, and it means to dwell. A form of that word, that's the verb shakan, the noun form is in Hebrew to make a verb a noun, you put an M in front of it, is mishkan. Mishkan is the term for the tabernacle. Now, this is an interesting word because forms of shakan, cognates of shakan, are found in quite a few different languages. In Greek, it is skene. I think in Russian, it's something similar, isn't it, Jim? Very close. So you have this sprinkled around, and it comes out of the Hebrew. So it's mishkan, and you also find the Greek form skenao, S-K-N is your, are your root consonants, SKN in John 114, uh, which talks about the fact that uh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He dwelt among us. It means to dwell in, shakan means, or skenao means to dwell in a tent. So you have a prophecy there that, that God will enlarge Japheth and God will dwell in the tents Shakan of Shem. Jesus comes to the descendant of Shem, the Jewish people, and dwells in the tents of Shem. So this is a prophecy of the coming of Jesus to the descendants of Shem. 
In Genesis 12.3, it's narrowed to Abraham. In Genesis 12.3, in the uh, preview of the Abrahamic covenant, God says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you all families of the earth shall be blessed. So there's going to be a worldwide blessing that comes through the lineage of Abraham. It's confirmed in Genesis 17.6 and 7 that God is going to establish his covenant with Abraham and his descendants, his seed, literally. And there it's understood as a plural form. But in Genesis 22.17, it's often translated as plural, but it's not. There God says, indeed, I will greatly bless you. And I will greatly multiply your seed. There it's a plural sense, your descendants. You know that from the context. I'm multiplying your descendants as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. That demands a plural sense. But then it says, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. Now that is typically understood to refer to Israel. The problem is that the word enemies has a third person masculine singular pronoun his enemies it's singular it's not it it shifts Zerah is uh, descendants in the first part of the verse but because of the singular pronoun referring to it at the end it's his enemies it's talking about the Messiah and then we come to the last prophecy I'll mention in Genesis this morning it's a prediction that the line of the Messiah, the line of the seed of the woman, will pass through Judah. Uh, Before he died, Jacob gathers his sons, and he makes predictions about their future. Uh, Regarding Judah, he says, the scepter, that is the sign of kingship or rulership, shall not depart from Judah. In other words, Judah is going to be the tribe of the king. So the king ultimately refers to the messianic king. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So often this is taken as a proper name, and it should not be. That is that is an error. When we look at how this is used subsequently, this phrase, in um, Ezekiel, we'll just look at here, Ezekiel 21:25. Now to you, O profane, wicked prince of Israel, whose day has come. Shiloh, that's what it says in the Hebrew. It means whose time is now, whose time has come. In Ezekiel 21:27, it says, overthrown, overthrown, I will make it overthrown. It shall be no longer until he comes whose right it is. Okay, that's the Shiloh. That's, so it, what this should be translated when we look at Genesis 49.10, until he who comes, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until he whose right it is comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So it narrows it from We trace it in Genesis 5 from Adam to Noah. In Genesis 11 from Noah to Shem. From Genesis 12 through Genesis 50, it's traced through the descendants, the sons, grandson, great-grandson, great-great-grandson of Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. 
one great-grandson. Okay, next time we'll look at the fulfillment of the seed on this woman. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin. Which virgin? It says the virgin. Is this everybody knows which one he's talking about? That's an allusion back to Genesis 3.15 and the seed of the woman. So we'll return next time to see that as we proceed with understanding how God was identifying ahead of time who the Messiah Savior would be with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to understand that from the very beginning of Scripture, there are clear prophecies about the coming Messiah, the one who would deliver man from the problems of sin and evil. And that we would, so that we would know who he is when he appeared on the planet. Father, we thank you that we can rely on the certainty and surety of Scripture, that it is not something that is just guesswork, that it is clear, precise, detailed information so that we can identify the one who would provide salvation, that would be the Savior of the world, the one who would be God and man and be called Emmanuel, God with us. Father, we pray for anyone listening to this message, listening now or in the future, that they would understand that man has a problem we cannot solve ourselves, and that is sin and spiritual death, and that you have provided the only solution, which is a unique Savior, the God-man, who, because he was without sin, could go to the cross and that he could pay the penalty for us in our place so that we might have everlasting life. Father, we pray that anyone listening would have a clear understanding of that good news, that great news, the, the great news that the angels announce that, that it's good tidings of great joy because we can have life eternal because of Christ our Lord. And that all that is needed is to trust, to believe in Jesus Christ as Savior. And at that instant, we are saved, we are born again, we become new creatures in Christ, and you bless us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. So, Father, we pray that you would make these things clear to us and strengthen and encourage our faith as we go forward in this study. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.